welcome to Church Meets World, a podcast from America Media about where the Catholic Church meets the most interesting and consequential issues of our time. I'm Maggie Van Dorn, an audio producer at America. And today I'm joined by Ricardo De Silva, who is a Jesuit and an associate editor at America. Ricardo, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's wonderful to be here with you on Church Meets World. So normally Sebastian and I introduce it, but we've done something really different with this episode. I'm not only introducing and producing the show, but I've turned the mic on myself to capture a more intimate subject that is already pretty personal. And, you know, that's the experience of grief. And what an experience it's been, Maggie, you know, just talking about grief the stories that we will hear are very moving and courageous on your part to be able to turn the mic inward and and to let us into your experience. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, it was very challenging to make. And that's why it was so important to have you, Ricardo, along to accompany me in this process of encountering grief, as it were. And so you, dear listener, will also have the privilege of hearing Ricardo accompany you through each chapter of this story. And we hope that you will draw great profit from the people you meet in the stories you're about to hear and find in them companions in times of grief. Okay, let's get rolling. Chapter One, The Summer of Grief. Let's do some work. Ah, yeah. Let's do the butterfly coloring. This is Hawk and Claire, the children that wandered onto our porch at the start of COVID and never left. Okay, that's an exaggeration. They went home to eat and sleep and for Zoom school, but most of the time they sat beside me, drawing butterflies, sharing their rock collection, braiding my hair, and occasionally doing homework. I tried explaining what an audio producer does and, well... I got a lot of great tape. And she also ran races. Hawk is telling me about his hero, Ashley Fielick. She's a motocross champion, and she's also deaf like him. And they also like that she could show her courage and inspire other deaf people. And then there's Zuzu, the real reason we all became friends. This is a cute little baby. This story is hard to tell chronologically. So let's rewind. So it was early March, 2020, and coronavirus was quickly becoming a global threat. China had been under strict quarantine since December, and Italy's hospitals were totally flooded with COVID patients. It just sent this collective shiver down the spine of our nation. And so when he reached out to see if I had safely stocked up on canned goods, it felt serious and definitely different from before. The five years of on and off dating that always seemed to end because he didn't want to be serious or any kind of committed, really. But this time we had the apocalyptic fever. You know what I'm talking about. The to hell with it. Times are uncertain. There's a mysterious virus encircling the globe. We might be trapped in these overpriced apartments if we don't get out now. Kind of passion. (laughs) 
We didn't plan beyond two weeks. I packed a single suitcase and got on a 7 a.m. train to West Hartford, Connecticut. No one was wearing masks yet, but the passengers were wiping down their seats furiously. The Connecticut bunker, as we called it, was a house that he had bought and then rented out for years. And rather serendipitously, it had become vacant that month. It was built in the 1920s, meaning it charmed me almost as much as he did. And sure, the furniture was a hodgepodge mix of Ikea and whatever the previous tenant had left behind. But the floorboards creaked and the bathtub was deep with claw feet. And I was in heaven. And then, on April 18th, we got Zuzu. Sit. A golden retriever puppy who was sickeningly cute. Move down the big steps. You got it. Whoa, down. When my friends and family asked how I was doing in the bunker, I confessed, I am indecently happy. I know the world is falling apart, but for the first time I get to be with him. Really and truly just be without him running anywhere. When I put it like that, it definitely sounds like I was holding him hostage in his own bunker. But he seemed happy with our Corona Haven. Or so he told me. Hey, it's me. I'm just calling. I'm sorry if my turn didn't come across while I messaged it. Um... And then, one day in June, when Hawk and Claire were out for the summer and Zuzu was potty trained, he reminded me that this was just a COVID arrangement. Our lives might have been locked down, but our relationship would never be. So he packed up his things, turned the key on the romantic old house, and moved with Zuzu to Colorado, where I'm told all the lost boys eventually go. And so began my summer of grief. One year later, in June 2021, the coronavirus has claimed over 600,000 lives in the United States. And as of this morning, around the world, 3,835,167 people have died. Within each of those deaths is a world of grief. And then there are the losses that go beyond numbers. Grandparents who still can't hug their grandchildren. Hi, Nana and Kevin. I miss you. Mothers delivering their babies alone. It's 11.30 at night. I just breastfed. I wore a mask. Kids unable to play with friends or tap their teachers on the shoulder. Uh, Now it's like, you know, elbow or nope, social distance, remember? Family businesses forced to shut down after decades of operation. And none of our team thinks that we're going to be able to come back or the governor's going to let us open for Christmas and New Year's. The lives of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor. He will never see her grow up, graduate. He will never walk down the aisle. Even the chance to grieve was lost when we couldn't bury the dead. Funeral homes working around the clock to keep up with requests for services.
for me, there would be two more losses that summer. I'll tell you about them later. But first, I want to talk about the losses we haven't counted, the grief we have not yet named. I want to grant us all permission to ask, when was the last time I cried? So often, if we don't weep, we don't grieve well. This is my friend Ben Perry. Now he's a Presbyterian minister, but we first met several years ago during an internship and hospital chaplaincy. At that time, Ben and I cried often and easily in front of each other. We were visiting the sick and dying, so how could we not? But it turns out crying was something Ben had to actively work on. And as I was starting seminary, I remember being in one of my first semester classes and people, we were talking about grief and things. The professor said something like, think back to the last time you cried. And I realized that I couldn't remember, that I, I really couldn't remember the last time I had cried. And I said, oh, oh, oh my, I must be missing out on some really fundamental part of my humanity. And that seems not great. Certainly not as someone who is aspiring to be a religious leader, but also just not as a, as a person. And so I, I just made the decision that I was going to make myself cry. But the practice of shedding tears didn't come easy for him. And I think I tried watching some like sad videos and things and that wasn't doing it. And so I remember thinking about my parents dying. That was how extreme uh, it needed to be in order for me to cry. I just sat and sort of mined that emotion until I started to feel some tears welling. And then I just, you know, kept going, kept going, kept drilling deeper into that feeling until finally I, I cried for the first time. And it was this euphoric, ecstatic release. I mean, a true religious ecstasy in a, in a sense that I, that I had not experienced in quite some time. Soon, this new habit began to change Ben. What I found was that after even just a few weeks, I all of a sudden had in some substantial way recalibrated my emotional state so that I could watch something that was a little bit uh, less horrifyingly traumatic and I would start to cry. So Ben, how did this practice of crying every day and the whole recalibration of your emotional system, how, how did it land up impacting your pastoral relationships? Yeah, I, I would have been a much worse minister if I had just like, nah, it's all good. You don't need to cry. <laughs> crying is crying is for Nancy boys. Um, yeah, I would not be able. I don't think I would be able to provide effective care because oftentimes one of the things that that I'm trying to do when I am providing pastoral care is creating a space where people feel that it is okay to feel, and particularly it's okay to grieve whether it's when I'm in a pulpit or if I'm in a conversation, a pastoral conversation with somebody, I cry openly because I, I think it lends people the opportunity and the permission to do the same in a world that, that so often tells them the opposite. But I also think that you know, a huge crucial part of providing effective pastoral care is understanding where people, where people are. Literally resonating with what they are yeah. going through. So how can you provide care to somebody if you're not even willing to dig into that grief that we all carry and you know live your life as if it didn't exist how are you going to provide any other care other than get over it the spiritual practice of weeping isn't reserved for ministers alone in fact there's a long biblical tradition of lamentations the prophet jeremiah has been dubbed the weeping prophet 
because of the tears he shed for Judah. Ben reminds me that Joseph of the famed Technicolor Dreamcoat was also a big time crier. And when he's he's in Egypt, this is after, you know, the, the after the dream code, after the the horrifying abuse, after. So after Joseph has been enslaved in Egypt and his prophetic dreams place him at the right hand of Pharaoh, his brothers come and they don't recognize Joseph. They don't recognize him, and Joseph recognizes his brothers. Uh, but before he confronts them and reveals himself to them, he rushes into another room and he weeps. It's this this fascinating connection between our willingness to cry and our willingness to change the world, to confront, in Joseph's case, this devastating history that he is still carrying inside of himself. He, he cannot confront his brothers until he confronts that grief. And it's that, that process of encountering grief that allows him to then not only confront his brothers, but forgive them. Even if we can all acknowledge that it's okay to cry, does anyone do it openly? Who among us does not have a special crying room at work? Or doesn't rush to apologize when it happens spontaneously? So what happens? when a power like grief is denied. Chapter 2. Grief Denied I think grief is more like quicksand, you know, in terms of a kind of sticking thing, a bottomless thing, a thing that's unknown when you're going through it. There's not a predictability to grief. There's not a prescription. This is Liz Hauk. She's the author of Homemade, a story of grief, groceries, showing up, and what we make when we make dinner. I have turned to a lot of people and resources in the past year to help me make sense of my grief, and Liz's book was one of them. Let's see, who was my dad? My dad was a social worker. He was a gentle guy, you know. He loved softball and baseball and food and us. In her Um, book, Liz describes a familiar scene around the dinner table of her family home. Um, And always before we ate, we prayed. And my mom would always add, you know, and for the people who don't have what we have, especially the children who don't have what you all have, we knew who she was talking about. They were talking about the kids that didn't have a home. Her father was a social worker and chief financial officer of a nonprofit in Boston that provided residential services for youth in state care. When Liz got older, her and her dad would talk about the ways that He could develop a rapport with the kids there. That's what he called the teenage clients, the kids. And I suggested a cooking class because he loved cooking shows. But then when he got sick, that got backburnered like so many other things. Liz lost her dad less than a year after they had planned the cooking program. And Liz was determined to see it through. The story sounds like one of those great White Hope movies where a 20-something bleeding heart shows up, you know, with arms full of things to make a difference. Liz wasn't new to volunteering, and she didn't see this as a chance to rescue a troubled group of boys. As she says in the book, salvation was never on the table. 
and the ending is not uh, it's not a movie ending. At the beginning, Liz had to build trust. And she also had to provide options. You know, what are we going to eat? Do you want to help or do you just want to eat? Do you want to come or do you not want to come at all? There's no, you know, no attendance taking, no requirements, no cost. There was only something to be had if you wanted to have it. For kids who already had so much taken away, the ability to choose what you want for dinner or just to insist on having your favorite soda to go along with it. That stuff matters. And I would venture to say that's because grief or loss renders all of us powerless. We can't control the life we're born into. We can't control when the life of someone we love will be taken from us. And we can't control when another person chooses to walk away. And that's precisely why choices, even the small ones, are so important. And yet, as Liz reminds me, these moments are so easy to miss. I think we don't do grief well in our culture. We don't acknowledge how kids grieve and when kids are grieving and what it looks like when kids are grieving. And I wonder what it would be if we kind of paid attention to grief and looked at like anger as rooted in grief, looked at acting out related to grief. I think it would potentially be kind of transformative, right? To kind of look at kids who are cast as troubled kids to kind of really look at where their troubles come from. This might not be immediately obvious to us from a distance. The nightly news doesn't read like a menu. Teen robbery with a side of grief. So in Liz's story, it's not salvation she's bringing to the table. It's community. I say in the book, grief is the ultimate marinade, that in grief, we become more of what we already were already, that the lonely become lonelier, that the angry become angrier. And I think that somehow the faithful become more faithful. I think that part of grief is the realization that life is going to end or life on earth is going to end. And so with that, I, th- I think that shifted my restlessness. Liz's story has got me thinking. If grief is a marinade for self, what is it that you and I will become? Chapter 3. Grief Overlooked Hi, Maggie May. I just wanted to call you and tell you I'm so sorry to hear about Trinka. Just want to let you know I love you, and I'm sending you lots of kisses and hugs. See ya. I told you there were two other big losses for me last summer, and I'm afraid this one involves yet another dog I had to say goodbye to. We last left off with the guy taking the golden retriever, Zuzu, to the remote mountains of Colorado. Before he left, he joked that I would be more heartbroken about losing Hawk and Claire and Zuzu than I would be about losing him. That's only partly true. All I can say is it hit me like a divorce on a honeymoon. So I did what any grieving person displaced by a pandemic does. I went home to my mom. There, I noticed our family dog, Trinka, had developed a cough. Well, the cough became hacking, and then she was spitting up blood. 
Trinka was a tall, graceful labradoodle with big, kind eyes and tight black curls. And she was young, only four years old, so she still had that puppy spring in her step. When we brought Trinka to the vet, they sent her home with an antibiotic, and so we carried on. I continued to confide in Trinka, tell her everything I was going through, and she rested her head in my lap and listened. Sometimes she would offer me her paw, which was a trick I taught her and she knew made me proud. But after a few days on the antibiotic, Trinka's condition didn't improve. This time, the vet recommended a nebulizer and a treatment called coupage. You basically cup your hand and gently pound your puppy's chest in an attempt to break up the phlegm that is congesting the lungs. You can hear me practicing coupage on her, the nebulizer just misting softly around us. I took these videos to send to the vet to make sure that I was doing the treatment correctly. And then... The cough became so violent, and her breathing labored. I'm worried about her. And then they told us the unthinkable. Trinka was dying of a strain of pneumonia that was totally resistant to antibiotics. We drove to the animal hospital at midnight. It was quieter then and more calm for Trinka. I brought her favorite stuffed animal, a squeaky pig with a Santa hat, and one of the rocks that she liked to play with. And I sat beside her on the floor as the vet explained the two shots that he would give her. I was sobbing uncontrollably, my mask completely drenched in tears. But he was calm and kind and never broke eye contact with me. It wasn't only that Trinka was dying, but that I had to give my vet consent to inject into her bloodstream the drugs that would put her to sleep and then stop her heart from beating. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. It meant accepting that her life, that all our lives are just hanging on by a thread. And as Liz said earlier, that life on this earth will end. It's one thing to understand that in concept, or to have elaborate theologies to explain life and death, but it's quite another to hold your puppy and nod your head for her life to end. And then Trinka did the most amazing thing. She offered the vet her paw, just like I taught her. And then, with my hand on her chest, I felt her heart like a steady metronome, beat its last. It felt strange to talk about losing my dog when so many other people were losing the humans in their family. So I don't want to pretend like they're comparable. But I will say that it can be a grief that is overlooked and that our relationship to the animals in our lives says a lot about us. Our desire to nurture, to make sacrifices, and perhaps to understand our own creaturehood in the process. And so, of course, we grieve them. The next story is about a different kind of loss. One that happens all the time, but which we rarely notice. 
So we went to Mass, Christmas Day Mass at a church, and I remember I'm sitting there and I feel like I I can tell that I'm bleeding more and more. I can feel it now. And the hope is like slipping out as I'm listening to the birth story of Jesus and we're singing Christmas songs. And I just felt like I had this sad, dark secret that nobody in the whole room would understand because they're celebrating Christmas and birth. And I'm literally most likely bleeding out a baby that we've really wanted. This is Britt Luby. I first read her story in an article she wrote for America. She talks about her Christmas morning miscarriage, but she also goes on to say that she lost two other babies that year. So I went on an all-women's retreat a few months after my third miscarriage at an Ignatian Spirituality Center, and I had some pretty negative conversations there. So it was a women's retreat, which uh, no woman spoke at because only the priests were allowed to talk. And I guess didn't realize until I was there that I probably needed to be speaking to women. I did have a meeting with a priest that was part of the spiritual direction provided at the retreat. I told him I was there because I had had three miscarriages. And he asked me if my continued attempt to have a baby was going to make my firstborn son feel as if he wasn't enough. And I thought, I came to you for help with my prayer life, not to be criticized for how I'm a mother to the son that I have. He also told me to look at the cross Jesus suffered, and that was the extent of the assistance I got. One of the things that's hardest about grief is dealing with other people's responses to it. And religious leaders can be some of the best, but they can also be some of the worst, which is strange, right? As Catholics, we literally have a body hanging from a cross that stands on every altar and drapes from gold chains around our necks. And yet, somehow, we miss the mark with grief. I had people say, you're just stressed. Stop trying so hard. It'll just happen. I had someone say to me, maybe God doesn't want you to have more children. Can't you see this as a sign? I was very grateful that I had enough spiritual maturity to to not take that to heart, to say to myself, I think they're wrong. This isn't what God wants for me. Um, this is just happening. God's with me, and it's just happening. I think it's because we have elaborate theologies of God and angels and heaven that we religious people always believe there's an explanation. Even for awful or tragic events, But I think I prefer Britt's interpretation, because when I look back at my own experience of loss, there's never a satisfying explanation. So what do you want to hear when you're grieving? The first thing I wish people had just said was, this sucks. You know, just like acknowledge that it's hard and and it's okay that it's hard. Um, I'm so sorry this is happening to you. I can't understand your grief. And I'm sorry that you have to experience. You are a good mother. I love you. Um, I hope you can have more children because you are a really good mom. How can I help you? Can I feed you dinner tonight? How do you feel today? Or they asked how my husband was doing. And even if the moment doesn't feel right, there are plenty of other thoughtful approaches. 
sometimes just sending an email or a handwritten letter can be a really great way to check on them because then they're not caught off guard in public with you asking like, so your dad died a month ago, how do you feel today? But you can just send them that note that says, I know that the anniversary is coming up and I'm thinking about you and you know, maybe I can drop off dinner next month. Would that be okay? And such a sensitive, deeply personal thing. I wanted to talk. Well, correction, I needed to talk to my closest friends. One of my best friends, Sarah, would often check in on me just by asking, how's your heart today? And it gave me permission to unload if I wanted. But there were times I didn't feel much like talking. And I bet for lots of people, there is an unnamed ache that they're not prepared to talk about, but which is important to somehow recognize. Britt found the support she needed in a community called Daughters of Abraham. It's an interfaith group comprised of Jewish, Christian, and Muslim women. I'm usually the youngest one there by quite a bit because it happens during the day. And so I would leave work and go, but mostly it was retired women. Each month, they decide together on a theme. So this one time, Britt proposed women's health. So I stood up and I said, hi, my name is Britt. I've had three miscarriages this year, and um, my church has been a huge part of all of my life, but there's no place for it now. And I, I just wanted to know how you have navigated things like miscarriage and your faith. And I think they first started talking like more theologically, like maybe somebody quoted something from the Bible. It was sort of abstract at first, but then it just pretty quickly built into somebody saying, you know, well, actually I had a miscarriage when I was this age and that was like 50 years ago, but she spoke about it so clearly and with so much love for that loss. Um, And then it just kept happening. More and more women were saying, yeah, no, this happened to me too. And so uh, at one point, the leader of the group asked if anyone was comfortable uh, to stand up if they had had a loss, and almost every woman stood. And it just made me feel really connected to the shared sisterhood of women of faith who go through these losses, who may not always find the support they need in their religious communities, but often find it with other women. I have a daughter now. She's two and a half. Um, and she's, she's great. She's a lot. Her school calls her extra. <laughs> and she's a lot, but she's so great. Mm-hmm. What's her name? Frances. Yeah, Franny. And her middle name is Loveland, which is my grandmother's name. So she gets called Frances Loveland a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Adorable. Yeah. Chapter 4, Grief Delayed. Maggie, just want to wish you a very, very happy Easter. I'm watching the Yankee game. Score is 5 nothing in favor of the Yankees. And what else can I say? Have a great day, kid. God bless you. I love you. This is my grandfather, Dan Leonard II. Born in the Bronx and an eternal Yankees fan. A wisecrack, the best cup of tea this side of the Atlantic, a man of deep faith, 
my papa. For a whole 30 seconds, I had to listen to some music that was in Irish. I've collected his voicemails over the years because, as you can clearly hear, he leaves the best messages. And in many of them, he just launches straight into song. California, here I come, right back where I started from. That was an attempt to convince me to return home to California. Papa had a big hand in raising me. He watched me as a child when my mom worked late nights. He told me all of his best jokes, and oh my god, he loved riddles. If it takes three men, two days to dig a hole, how many days does it take one man to dig half a hole? Do you have your answer? Okay, good. Now, have you ever seen half a hole? (laughs) Papa went to heaven on August 15th, 2020, on the Feast of the Assumption, which was especially significant given his devotion to Our Lady. He prayed the rosary daily, and before he got ill, was at Mass every morning. And it's because he had such a deep faith that he never feared death. In fact, for years, he gave us very explicit instructions. He'd say, don't be sad when I go, because I'll be in heaven. So throw a party for me, order pizza, beers, and celebrate that I've made it. And that's exactly what we did. And in most of the days and weeks and months that followed, I was sincerely buoyed by Papa's faith. I knew there'd be moments when his absence would be felt more poignantly, but the image of him dancing an Irish jig with the angels carried me forward. And I wanted to do as he asked, to be happy for him and not sad for myself. And then six months later, the dam burst. Not a day passed when I didn't think about Papa and cry. Sometimes it would hit me while I was driving and I'd have to pull over. Or I'd just have one of those heaving sobs in the shower. I couldn't understand why, after so much time had passed, it was now hitting me like a tidal wave. Um, I think you don't grieve if you don't love. So, Or you only grieve to the degree that you love. This is Father Richard Leonard. Now, it's not lost on me that Father Leonard shares a surname with my papa, but that's not why I reached out to him. A colleague had pointed out that Father Leonard wrote a book entitled Where the Hell is God? And that he too had suffered real loss. Tracy was, without question, the most generous, the most wonderful, the most life-giving person. She'd worked with Mother Teresa for three years in Calcutta. Tracy is Father Leonard's sister. Tracy was giving a ride to a group of Indigenous women and their children when her car suddenly broke down. Another car stopped and offered to tow them. The police report concluded that the tow rope was too long between the vehicles and unbeknownst to either, uh, she's coming up, doubling over, coming up, doubling over, and the rope was winding around the axle. And then they took a very sharp left-hand bend in the road. Tracy went over the rope for the last time. 
And it, that um, saw the rope snap and she veered off the road and uh, flipped. And then it rolled and rolled and rolled and bang, right into a tree. It took the jaws of life, an emergency evacuation squad, and a helicopter to free Tracy. She had broken her neck and crushed her spine. And then for the next 28 years, she's washed, fed, turned, toileted, and clothed. It was my mother, who's a daily masker, really very faith-filled, um, turned to me and she said, well, where the hell is God? That question, where the hell is God, is a perfect summation of theodicy. Theodicy is this subdiscipline of theology that wrestles with the question, how can there be evil or profound human suffering and a benevolent, all-powerful God? How can those things coexist? But like I said earlier, these elaborate theological explanations never spoke to me. And they didn't settle well with Father Leonard either. When you're in grief, uh, you, you live in your heart. Uh, you don't live in your head as much because you feel the pain in your whole body. Sometimes you physically feel it. So I got a sense when these great philosophers and theologians are writing about finding God in pain and suffering, it was all in their head and great thoughts and good ideas, but it didn't seem to answer any of the heart stuff, any of the profound pain of the body, physical and emotional that I was going through. It's not always easy to ignore these bad theologies. When people learned about Tracy's accident, they sent Father Leonard a lot of well-meaning platitudes, like, God will only give you as much as you can handle, or... God only sends the biggest crosses to those who can bear them. The problem with all these cliches, says Father Leonard, is they make God out to be a tyrant. No one loves that nut in North Korea. Nobody loved Saddam Hussein and nobody loved uh, Gaddafi. You know, no one loved Hitler or Stalin. You survive these people. And I would break my heart to think that's what some Christians are doing, surviving God. God's not a tyrant. God's totally committed to us in the human adventure. I love that, actually, that, that God's totally committed to us in the human adventure. That's the whole story of the incarnation. God didn't come in his palace as a prince. Uh, God crept in beside us, as the, the Scottish theologian John Bell says. God crept in beside us on Christmas morning. I loved that line. We're the only world religion to believe God died. Like, there's nothing terribly uh, exciting about a man dying and a God rising. Well, a God dying and a man rising, now that's new territory and that's profound. Maybe the best theological explanations we have for death and loss is, as Britt says, this is just happening and God is with us in it. Or maybe as Father Leonard puts it, that God's totally committed to the human adventure. But if I'm honest, even those expressions have, at least for me, felt a bit hollow. When I have felt most powerless or just plain angry, I'm much more inclined to say, where the hell is God? And what does it mean God is in it with me? Tell that to me in a way my heart will hear. 
I've been batting around a number of quotes on grief, but my favorite might be from a blog post by Jamie Anderson. She writes, Grief, I've learned, is really just love. It's all the love you want to give, but cannot. All that unspent love gathers in the corners of your eyes, the lump in your throat, and in that hollow part of your chest. Grief is just love with no place to go. You don't grieve what you don't love. And so to endure grief is really to endure love. None of it is very pretty. It can be filled with rage, confusion, ugly shower cries, denial, bargaining, all the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross stages of grief except thrown in a blender at top speed, and then the result of which is Liz's marinade. For some of us, it's barely seen at all. But just because there are no tears does not mean that grief is dormant. As Ben said, the emotional system sometimes needs recalibrating. So to hell with arbitrary timelines and orderly stages. Let's relieve ourselves of the burden of trying to get back to normal or to some mythical state of happiness. And what if instead of resenting grief, we welcomed its arrival as a sign that we've really loved? The shortest line in all scripture is Jesus wept. He wept at the death of his friend Lazarus before he called him by name, out of his tomb, and into the light. To call anybody my name in the Bible is an act of enormous intimacy. So Lazarus come out. And then he says to the crowd, unbind him and let him go free. And I would hope that if we cry, if we get our emotions, if we name it, we go through any process, we're being called by name an act of intimacy, we're being unbound and we're being let go free. Church Meets World is a production of America Media. This episode was written and produced by me, Maggie Van Dorn, with emotional support and editing from Ricardo Da Silva, production assistance and unsolicited vocal coaching from Kevin Christopher Robles, engineered with so much love by Rebecca Seidel. It was inspired by articles by Liz Hauk and Britt Luby for America Magazine. You can find those at americamagazine.org, and I'll be sure to link to them in the show notes. Thanks for listening.